wait. So what? How do we start the show? I think you say this is blah blah blah, and I said a podcast about the hazards of loving the Decemberists. The hazards. Okay. Wait, what's the name of this podcast? <laughs> well, you're gonna, you're gonna hear it in just a second. Here she comes. This is we both podcast together, a show about the hazards of loving the Decemberists. I'm your host, Pete Wissinger. And I am your co-host, Matt Esner. And today, for the first time, for you longtime listeners, we have a guest. Uh, with us today is my brother, Steve Wissinger. Hello, everybody. So just a warning to all of you out there, Steve and I don't look that much alike in person. We are twins, but we are vocally almost identical. Our wives have told us that they have trouble telling us apart on the phone. In fact, for those of you who are listening, Steve was just listening to a recording of himself and thought he was listening to me. It is confusing for me as well. I'm doing my best. Uh, So Matt and I had talked about uh, wanting to have guests occasionally on this show, and I thought that a good first guest would be the person who I have been listening to the Decemberists with as long as I have known about the Decemberists. So that's why I figured you'd be perfect to have for album number one. Yeah, this does take me back to like a very specific time in my life, uh, especially since this was the first Decemberist album that I ever heard. Yeah, do you want to uh, maybe give us a little history of your uh, your experience with this album? Sure. I mean, so in college, right, uh, the very much freshman year developing my musical taste, I'm listening to a lot of stuff from high school, a lot of them might be Giants and Ben Folds. But just getting interested in sort of indie rock, college rock. Um, And one of my friends sends me two albums in the mail that he has recently gotten into that he likes. One of those albums is Dear Catastrophe Wastress by Bell and Sebastian. And the other is Castaways and Cutouts by the Decemberists, both of which go on to become very influential in my developing of my musical taste. At first, listening to this album, I I was not super interested. It wasn't actually until I, spoiler alert for future episodes, listened to Picaresque that I really got into the Decemberists because this album, upon first listen, somehow sounded exactly like Neutral Milk Hotel to me. You know, you're not the only person who has <laughs> has that opinion. I I know. Because I I read the original Pitchfork review. That's today. The, that's coming later. Yeah, we'll show. be talking. We'll be talking about that in a bit. But actually, I haven't found any articles about the band from this era that don't mention Nuke Dramilk Hotel. But there's, uh, listening to it today, I try to think of like, where do I get that? So Leslie and Levine sounds sort of like King of Carrot Flowers. July July sounds sort of like Ghost. Yeah, we'll kind of get into it as we go. I think the comparisons are kind of weird, mostly because I kind of feel like part of what makes Nuke Dramilk Hotel special is that Jeff Mangum always kind of seems like he's on the verge of kind of losing it. Whereas yeah. Colin Malloy always seems very much, much more calculated to me. Yeah, to a fault almost. Yeah, <laughs> I think their vocal styles are somewhat similar in the fact that they both tend to belt it out. I think that might be where some of the comparisons are coming from. Well, as you can say, and also like the sort of like lush folk instrumentation. The, I mean, their voices are both nasally. They're both writing about sort of possibly disturbing historical situations. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Um, Matt, I kind of feel like we should have like some uh, stock questions to ask people when they are guests on the show. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. That we should. But we didn't come up with these before, so we should totally spitball them I, right I, now. I, yeah, let's I do say it right we now. Just go and just whatever happens becomes a tradition. Yeah. Okay, so here's my first my first question for you that I'm going to ask everybody is, uh, what is your favorite Decemberist album or song? How about both? Don't let them off. Don't let them off the hook. Let's let's my hear both. My favorite Decemberist album for a long time was picaresque and i i think that's partially because it's the first one i really got into and partially because it's the first one that felt like a fully realized decemberist album but more recently as i've done some re-listening i really think it's crane wife which i know is their like big hit major label debut but i really think it's kind of where they perfect the the formula that they worked on for the first uh, several albums it was kind of the the fullest most beautiful culmination of what the decemberists in its original form were um my favorite decemberist song gosh i don't know i mean I, th- thinking of crane wife i really actually have a soft spot for sons and daughters which is a song i sing to my son now so that one today do you fill his mouth with cinnamon i think wasn't that an internet challenge that proved to be deadly at one point <laughs> wait somebody died no but like the whole thing was like you're gonna choke or something if you if you inhale cinnamon or something was that am i making that up it sounds like something that could kill you all right matt do you have a, a stock guest question yeah sure um if you had to live in the world of a decemberist song which decemberist song would you want to live in uh don't carry it all is like this sort of utopian, like lefty communist, like uh, fantasy land, right? Sounds good to me. I think that's that's a good answer. And almost like you almost seemed like you had that locked and loaded, like you were expecting that one, <laughs> which is kind of crazy because like we didn't know we were going to ask you these questions. Uh, I'm in social isolation with a toddler, and I've had very little cognitive stimulation for the last month or so, so I am like ready to go. So you're saying this podcast is a big deal for you right now. It's a big deal for my brain. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got another stock question. Uh, what is one of the most ridiculous words used in a Decemberist lyric that you can think of off the top of your head? So I have the lyrics in front of me for this album, which uh, almost justify all of the negative stereotypes <laughs> of Decemberist <laughs> lyricism. Some of these are words that I've never actually even looked at. Like, so, Mesa, like, so 15 years now, still a wastrel mesolide have brought yeah, this I, on I, me. I've got that one tagged from when we talk about That's, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Leslie Levine is full of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I kind of was thinking this the other day. I kind of get the feeling that the Decemberists were on the verge in their early years of being labeled as a sort of novelty band. There's some justification for calling this album like thesaurus rock. And I think they got a reputation early on also for being sort of a literary band, but it I don't know about you guys listening to this album today. I was trying to think of how justified that is. It certainly has big multisyllabic words. I think it's just like an, an easy angle to approach writing about the band from. Cause when I was doing some research on this album, which is, you know, there's not a ton of stuff press about this album from the time. Uh, but you know, people like to sort of overemphasize the, uh, the literary aspect of their, of their writing. When people like to talk about like, oh, it's just like a, a Dickens novel or something in an album. And, and all of that kind of thing is like very surface level and superficial. Okay, so here's another reason I'm excited to have Steve on the album is that he is an English teacher with an advanced degree in English literature, sure. which means that you're going to be doing the heavy lifting on the textual analysis here. I, I've been doing some of that. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so my other question would be, uh, do you have like a specific powerful uh, memory from seeing the Decemberists live that sticks out to you? So, Pete, I know I've seen the Decemberists pretty much every time you have. I know you, I've, I missed their most recent tour through town that you went to, but I'm trying to think. I think it's like, I think it's like seven times, maybe. Well, you didn't miss much on that, that last show. Well, Yikes. Well, Matt, yeah. come on. Spoiler alert. Let's save that one, I would think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, but there's something magical. The first, I mean, the first show we went to at the at the Exit Inn in Nashville, which is a tiny little venue, that I remember later on in our life seeing uh, Ted Leo there among, I think, maybe 15 people in the audience. Uh, that was a very awkward Ted Leo concert. But the December show was amazing. And it, it had a ragtag kind of um, like community theater element that that they lost as they got bigger. And I think what they did wound up doing was arguably better. But there was something, like I said, sort of magical and, and ragtaggy about uh, that first show. So do you uh, do you still consider yourself a Decemberists fan? That's a fair question. And I, I think I've sort of morphed into it. I Because I partly would say... No, I haven't loved several albums. Though I did actually, if you ever have me on a guest again, I actually love the album "The The King Is Dead," which I know is an underloved album. Um, uh, not the last, by the general public. That's fair. I still like follow Colin Malloy on Instagram, and I'm actually a big follower of Carson Ellis, who I know is not a member of the Decemberists, but is Colin Malloy's wife and a children's book illustrator now. Who I read a lot of books of hers with my with my son. Um, so, like, I don't know. I'm still like. I think maybe yes, I'm a fan. That doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> it's part of my identity. Somehow. But do you listen? Do you find yourself putting on the Decembers to listen to still? Uh, my son doesn't love them, but he doesn't let me listen to anything other than Thelonious Monk these days. Um, the answer is no, not often. And weirdly enough, it's 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 easier listening to Decembers albums like The King Is Dead, not like the more um, morbid material of this album that I wind up putting on just to kind of have it on in the background. Just tell him that he has to listen to the Tain until he likes it. All right. Um, so maybe I'll do a little bit of album background and then we can just jump into the songs. The album we're talking about today is the first full length release from the Decemberists. It's called Castaways and Cutouts. Uh, it was uh, self-produced for Hush Records in May of 2002. Um, I looked up Hush Records. They look like they're a small Portland based indie label. And uh, the album was actually re-released less than a year later on what would become their home for a couple of years, which is Kill Rock Stars. Um, and it was shortly after the re-release of this album in 2003 on Kill Rock Stars that they then released their second album, Her Majesty the Decemberists. And uh, I don't think this album got a ton of play and attention until its 2003 reissue. Um, Kill Rockstars is a bigger indie label uh, based in Oregon and Washington. They got some bigger names on there. Uh, Elliot Smith was on Kill Rockstars, Sleater Kinney, The Thermals, Deerhoof. Um, so they definitely were uh, a part of an established scene uh, when they entered the Kill Rockstars label. I think it's I think it's Deerhoof. Deerhoof. That's Deer fine. Hoof. Wow. That's what you pulled out of that? I'm, I'm dropping all these great facts and you just want to get annoying about pronunciation. We can talk about Elliot Smith. Do you want to talk about Elliot Smith? Not really. I want to. I'd like to save talking about Elliot Smith until we get to Clementine, if that's okay. Agreed. Um, so I should say that the title of this album is a lyric taken taken from a song on the album. 
um, from the album closer, California One Youth and Beauty Brigade. Um, the album has some really lovely cover art by Carson Ellis. Steve, if you would like to describe the cover art. The vinyl is actually better not to be that guy. Um, it absolutely um, is. The vinyl is a better version of this art. So the cover art has like a, a ship, like a sort of sailing ship, a clipper ship with what are silhouettes of clearly ghosts rising up out of it. Though the uh, Jealous Butcher uh, vinyl reissue actually has a beautiful sort of more detailed watercolor of that by Carson Ellis uh, with all the sailors and like some dogs and stuff uh, floating up uh, implicitly dead out of the ship. So talk about the lineup on the album. It is the people that you would come to expect from the Decemberists, Colin Malloy, playing guitar and singing, Nate Query on bass, Jenny Conley on organ, piano, and accordion, Chris Funk on guitar, pedal steel, and theremin. I'm trying to think of which song has theremin in it. That's a good question. And then uh, Ezra Holbrook uh, playing drums and doing the backing vocals. The only full-length album where he does that. So let's jump into the tracks. So track one on this album, Leslie Ann Levine. So, Matt, opening thoughts on Leslie Ann Levine. It's just a big open chord kind of strum fest uh, right off the bat. Right, and then it bursts into the accordion sea shanty sort of sound um, with some really nice uh, bowed bass on this song, which I always enjoy. My name is Leslie Ann Levine. So, Steve, as our textual analyst... What's this song about? So as far as I can figure, right, it is about a the ghost of someone named Leslie Ann Levine, who is a young girl who died after four hours of life. Yeah, young Three girl is very uh, yeah. underselling. So an infant <laughs> who then describes her life haunting various people and places, apparently, in 1842. Very specific No, no, date. no. No, no, no. The the chimney sweep that she fell in love with died in 1842. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> we should talk. Like, did this baby grow up after she died? Well, that's the thing. Like, she has a very big vocabula- vocabulary for a uh, for an you know an infant. But also, her mom died pretty soon after as well. So, and I mean, she hates her mom. Yes, because she's a wastrel mesolide. Yeah. Which? No. Uh, yeah. What? What's? What does that mean? Yeah, that's the one I had to look at. So a wastrel is like a like a, a wretched, sad person, right? And Mesolite is someone who is poorly matched in marriage. There's a whole theme in this of like, that actually is a little disturbing to me as I look through the lyrics of this, uh, this whole album about like mistreated women. Oh, yeah. In like a sort of like cringy Game of Thrones kind of way where it's like how many times is like rape going to be a plot point in this album? I'm, I'm guessing a lot. <laughs> well, I kind of get the feeling that He's very into sort of like the Edward Gorey sort of macabre stories and super dark humor kind of thing. But there's added to it in this album for sure is like several like hypersexual moments. Well, that's not just this album. Yeah, it started. It started five songs. It, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, this one I think has the most Decemberist thesaurus buzzwords in it. Um, you've got parapet petticoat wastrel well so here's a question if she is someone who 
is she the inferior status person or is she the upper class person who married a lower class person? The mother, I mean. The mother. Uh, well, she gave birth in a dry ravine, so something tells me that she's not real high class. <laughs> right. Unless and, and, it was, she was just on the way somewhere else and then it just happened. And her, her stillborn baby's grave is a ditch. Yikes. This is definitely like the first appearance of the sort of recurring rake character of the Decemberist, right? Like uh, in Mariner's Revenge song or the rake song of clearly someone who has taken advantage of uh, of a weakened woman. This is also one of the first, if not the first December song about child death. Yeah, it's certainly not the last. No, no, child death <laughs> is going to come up a lot. There's yeah. a lot of dead children That's in the fair. Decemberist catalog. I'm really concerned yeah. about this... Uh, ghost love affair with the chimney sweep well were like they, were were they here's the thing with the relationship start when the chimney sweep was alive or are they like ghost lovers i feel like they're ghost lovers i don't know about that guys <laughs> uh in general i really like this song it's a banger it's a great way to open an album all right track two here i dreamt i was an architect Would you guys be surprised to find out that this is Colin Malloy's favorite song on this album? Says who? Uh, there's a list I found online, I think it was from Paste Magazine, where he picked his favorite song off each album. Interesting. Uh, and this was his favorite off Castaways and Cutouts. I feel like he plays it a lot live. All right. I mean, I don't really get excited when I hear this song live, but... I blame this song as... And I actually like it, but I blame it as one of the reasons I had trouble getting into this album when it when I first heard it is because this was the second song. Yeah, I mean, you're coming off Leslie and Levine, and then you you pump the brakes with this one. Well, to me, this song is very reminiscent of Shiny from Five Songs. Except for Shiny is a Shiny is a that's a great song, and this one is just I like this middle song. of the road. I I do too, actually. I think lyrically, it's actually a more interesting song than Leslie and Levine, which is like a little obvious. That's I was just very heavy handed and this one is a little bit more sort of lyrical and nuanced, I think. So he first of all, one thing about this song, there's only two chords in this song. Uh the the actual music to the song doesn't really change as the song goes on. Uh there's little bits that pop in and out. But uh he has described this song as very influenced by Fleetwood Mac. And actually, when I, I saw him in a solo show live, and at the end of this song, he just seamlessly started singing uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Is that the name of the song? Uh, that sounds like a Fleetwood Mac song. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Thunder only happens yeah. when it's... Yeah. yeah or Dreamers, right. maybe. Yeah. Anyway, it's the same chords. All right. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> I think it's got... It's interesting. I think it... Um, Thinking about the lyrics here, like he picks it up again almost in Engine Driver as a very similar lyrically sort of song. Yeah, yeah, these sort of imagined other lives. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like I said, some of the lyrics I think are really interesting and, and atmospheric. So like the idea, like the the builder, the architect lyric, right, about how um, I built this balustrade to keep you home, to keep you safe from the outside world, but the angles and the corners, even though my work is unparalleled, never seemed to meet the structure, fell about our feet, and we were free to go. That is just, I mean, like, poetically is, like, I think a more interesting set of words than pretty much anything from Leslie and Levine. Yeah, it's it's got that nice melancholy moodiness. 
Uh, here's something interesting. The first part says, here I dreamt I was a soldier and I marked the streets of Birkenau. Yeah, okay, history teacher. Tell us about well, that. Well, I looked up Birkenau. Uh, that's Auschwitz. Yeah, right. Oh. So this is, he's dreaming that he's a Nazi. Oh, okay. Do you think that's why he likes the song so much? <laughs> well, this one also has a, a picture of it. It's a picture of three soldiers. And I once had a t-shirt with this image on it. They don't look like Nazis. I mean, there's no swastikas. Those are the, the worst kind of Nazis. Well, he's not actually a Nazi. He's just dreaming that he's a Nazi. Hmm. Um, so here's another question. Uh, later on, there's this part that uh, he he's, like speaks out to an imagined person listening. And he says, but you, my soiled teenage girlfriend. There's a lot of mistreated, dirty women in this album in a way that is problematic to me. And she's teenage. How old is he? He is also a teenager. Yeah, I mean, that, the, that context would be important uh, in judging his actions. Also, they're traveling without seatbelts on, which is totally not safe. Well, maybe it was maybe it was like the, you know, 50s or 40s before they put seatbelts in cars. Also, the 30s, 20s and 10s. Cars have been around for a while, guys. <laughs> the line there at the end about how we travel without seatbelts on and live this close to death. I know Con Malloy is a Smiths fan, and that feels very like, um, you know, to die by your side is such a heavenly way sure. to die. Well, the, yeah, the romance of dying with someone you love is certainly something he goes to a lot. Yeah, that's fair. I, I mean, it's not an exciting song. It's a pleasant song. I don't dislike it. It's like wallpaper. I like it. But it's a build up to the next song, which is like, one that you have to pay attention to whether you like it or not. All right, bring us in, Steve. Okay, so the next song is July, July. It stands alone in the whole album in terms of its sort of pacing, except for perhaps Legionnaire's Lament, with this building organ music um, and this like really up-tempo sort of pop uh, it's not folky, right? So this, we enter like the world of pop here, sort of uh, distinctly with July, July. Um, it's fast. The lyrics are um, jarring in terms of guts being suspended in fingers and uh, blood rolling down drains. Canadians. Uh, this is like a. Would you guys agree this is an album standout? Oh yeah, this is this this song slaps. It, it was it was definitely my favorite song when I first started listening to the Decemberists. Yeah, you. you you can throw this on a mix if you want to get people interested in uh, Decemberist. It's it's upbeat. It's fun. It's catchy. The lyrics are kind of silly. I mean, yeah. I think that definitely my favorite line is, uh, I'll say your uncle was a crooked French Canadian and he was gut shot running gin and how his guts were all suspended in his fingers, but how he held him, how he held him, held him in. I love that. It's great. <laughs> Interestingly, this has what I think is maybe one of the best December's lyrics, but it's not that. It's, I'll say your camisole was a sprightly light magenta, when in fact it was a nappy bluish gray. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what is my Victorian poetry doing in this rock and pop song? Yeah, it just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. And especially considering the song has a lot of sort of like, um, much more sort of like uh, gritty kind of imagery. But then that's very, yeah. So do you like elevated. the sort of like uh, creative writing degree sort of buzz lyricism or does that make you cringe? I, I liked it more when I was in my early 20s than I do now. Yeah, I will what say. do you think? What do you think it is about uh, this kind of like the lyrics and just the December's whole like joie de vivre that appeals to 20 somethings that is maybe a little bit more cringy to 30 somethings? Would you agree that it doesn't work as well for you than it did when you were younger? Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is 
when you're at that age and you're you want something different in your music you're tired of, of listening to the radio and you hear the same kind of bland banal stuff about relationships and so you get into a band that is speaking a different language right um, and what's exciting to you is how different it is and especially when you're younger you're trying to be different and you're trying hard but as you age and you look at it it feels like it's trying hard. So you think it's the same thing as like someone who's really into punk rock finding it silly when they get older? Sure, or or metal, or any of those kinds of. Um, whoa, 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 whoa! Well, no, whoa, I'm saying any of those kind of genres that can go real, real extreme, right? What is extreme feels exciting when when you crave more extreme things. Or maybe uh, part of it's probably just because I'm getting old and I don't crave these kind of extreme things. But I, but like I said. I'm charmed by this in a way that Leslie and Levine feels like it's trying very hard. I'm charmed by, I'll see her camisole as a sprite of light magenta when in fact it was a nappy bluish gray. Just because it's got, a, it's got a sense of humor, I think, that I like. I think the more self-aware they are, the better they are. All right, you guys, I'm really excited to talk about the next song. Oh, man. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's hit it. So track, track four, a cautionary song. So I want to start off by saying that I actually played this song as a part of a set for an open mic night I did in college. Yeah, I remember that. Really? That's, yeah, I did, I did a, not, a, a I three song set with my ukulele at an open mic night, yeah. and this yeah. was my my uh, closer. It's a pretty accordion heavy song. It's interesting that you would try to tackle it with a uke. So so here's the thing about this song. I think that this is maybe the most self indulgent song on the album. And I think it's supposed to be funny. It's a jo- the song is a joke. It's it's an extended your mama joke. It ends with yeah. a punchline. There's a punchline at the end, exactly. But it's is it funny? No. This is, <laughs> this, this song illustrates me more than anything how much my tastes have changed this since I was gross. in my early twenties. This is a really lyrically, the song is troubling. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack with this song. <laughs> So let's get the narrative down. Can we yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's happening here? We have we have a narrator speaking to a character who is apparently a child, talking about the fact that while they're sleeping, their mother uh, goes down to the harbor and waits for the sailors who, you know, are gross sailors, like dirty hands, torn trousers. I don't know why they're... There's so much nasty up. imagery in this song. Um, and they... They'd, and she's doing this willingly, and yet they um, gag her. The consensual element seems a little like she's desperate right so like but why but then but why gag her and and like tie her up and i think that's for them like that's not oh you're saying it's a kink thing yeah yeah it's that's they like it more that way so here's my question also her ankles her ankles are clasped by them is that where her ankles are clasped like they're holding on to her ankles um so if we're gonna get you know the details of the song to me you would imagine that she's like tied to a bed spread eagle not her ankles clasped together right and she does this from sailor to sailor i think they're coming into the room till she's satisfied the lot of the marina's teeming minions but but the most important is the next line which is in their opinions yes and they tell her not to say a thing or she'll end up dead and they throw her $30 which I don't know like what era this is taking place in with like <laughs> inflation it's obviously the past money. because we're talking about sailors and stuff right. I don't know there's there's but, sailors in the present again <laughs> they still like, exist this is a weirdly abusive relationship for like a prostitute like why are they like, who is she gonna tell 
Like, well, her her cousin, her cousin Kindred Kithikin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Kindred Kithikin is the name of her cousin. Isn't that what they say? Yeah, isn't that, is that their the... cousin, comma Kindred, comma Kith, comma or kin. Oh, okay. What is Kith? I thought that was a name. Kith and kin is a is a phrase. Oh, okay. And then it ends with this punchline: not just like this is why you should be nice to your mother. Because the next, so the next time she tries to feed you collard greens, remember what she does when you're asleep. So this, then the, they're speaking to like a brat who apparently complains about eating his vegetables. And so that comes into the title, right? Cautionary song is sort of like something you would say to like, you know, bad little children to make them behave. But the fact that it's a song that is a sort of jokey song about like sexual assault, about rape is... It's not worth the joke. I mean, it's just gross. The song grosses me out. But isn't it supposed to be gross? No, but like on a... <laughs> it's supposed to be gross in a way that you're supposed to find funny, though. Not gross in a way that you find yourself, like, appalled and physically repulsed. What if when we were younger, we just thought it was funny, but now that we're older, we're getting the true intent of the song? Yeah, that's it. I don't know about that. <laughs> Part of me thinks, I was talking actually to my wife about this, that this is the kind of song that Colin Malloy would not write again. I don't believe if, I don't think Colin Malloy writes music like this anymore. I mean, so much of this, since it's their first album, I wind up, I think, seeing done better in later albums, right? So this is like a, a mix of My Own True Love, Lost in Sea, and Mariner's Revenge song. So, I mean, I guess the question is, does it work as a sort of attempted stylistic mock-up or is it just a gross song? Matt, I'll let you handle that one. I'm just still reeling from the revelation that it's not a person's name, Kindred Kithikin. <laughs> Kindred Kithikin is not the name, no. I thought that was a person's name. It was like, it's a perfect old-timey name. What do you think of this song, Matt? I actually like this song a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> I think that maybe, Steve, perhaps taste and sense of humor have changed think, for you i think i'm too woke now guys and i mean that in like the sort of self-deprecating ironic way i don't mean that as a, a wholly positive self-development shall we uh move on all right odalisk so up front i would say if you were going to compare the decembrist to neutral milk hotel this would be the song you would use I feel like this sounds a lot like it could fit on In the Airplane Over the Sea. Yeah, if you replace the accordion with like a fuzzy guitar sound. Mm -hmm. Or like a, or a theremin, for instance. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, when I first listened to the song, didn't care for it too much. But it's now one of my favorite songs on the album. So it's, uh, it's one of the longer tracks on the album, uh, for sure. But it's also like one of the first times that they do their sort of sneak two songs into one song. Track. I was thinking the same thing. This musically is one of the more dynamic songs on the album. I actually remember seeing them live with an orchestra, and this was the one that, this was like the best song of the night because the orchestra really highlights that shift that happens in the song. So you've got this in terms of lyrics, Pete? Please, because I'm disturbed. Well, so by do you know what? An Odalisk is a member of a harem, a Turkish harem. Wow. But this is clearly not literally about a Turkish harem. Well, I was just impressed that I was going to bring in the definition of oh. the title. Yeah, I did good. also look it up in preparation for this. <laughs> God damn you. The, but the, but the, the, the setting is clearly modern. We have a, um, a fire escape involved, right? I'm this pretty sure we have another Turkish. mistreated woman. We absolutely do. <laughs> this is the thing that disturbed me, that we have two songs in a row, clearly songs about rape. Because we have 15 stitches, we'll mend those britches right and then rip them down again. 
uh, yeah. sampling Lay your switches. belly under mine, naked yeah. under me, such a filthy dimming shine the way you kick and scream. So who's the narrator of this song? That's a good question. I think it's a, it's a, a detached narrator. This is another, this, this, this also begins a theme in the album, not just of poverty, but of like contemporary urban poverty. We have this person with tin baby shoes, a kit bag full of marbles, and a broken billiard cue, and that's all they have. There's multiple songs in this album that that engage that that engage in the idea of urban poverty. One of the themes that I actually like on this album, I'm more into that than the um, mistreatment of women theme that runs through it. Matt, what do you think of this song? Uh, it's a rocker. I mean, for sure. Like it starts slow and then builds to like a, a pretty righteous, you know, rock. I don't know, fury. Yeah, for sure. Um, and honestly, for a song that's over five minutes long, there's not a lot of lyrics in the song. No. It's the angriest song on the album, for sure. Yeah, which is an emotion that you don't really get anywhere else on the album. I would say also it sort of um, tonally sort of presages uh, Hazards of Love. Like, I feel like there's a lot of the DNA of Hazards of Love is in this song. I think you get some of it in the Tane as well. Yeah, but like this is a it's definitely a dark song. Um, it's got some really lush instrumentation, I would say. This person was a, a lazy lady. Uh, she's raised on Prady's peanut shells and dirt in the railroad cul-de-sac. And I mean, also, what do we do with 10 dirty Jews? Yeah. There is a line know. about 10 dirty Jews. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that line. I really don't. Yeah, I'm disturbed by this song. This song is more disturbing to me than a cautionary song just because it's so much angrier. Uh, I'm, but I'm especially disturbed by its proximity to cautionary song. <laughs> You're saying these need to be spread out. I, yeah, I'm see, I think musically, like it's a good build. If there wasn't that, uh, speed bump in, uh, here I jumped out with an architect, you have a pretty, pretty solid op- uh, album opener. No, I love here. I jumped. I think that we're good so far, but you know what? It's kind of getting me too worked up. Yeah. Like, I think, I think I need to come down from this. That's it's good that you're feeling that way because uh, the next track is gonna it's gonna do just that. Steve, please introduce the next track. Last track of side A on this album, track number six is Cocoon. Which probably until maybe what a beautiful world, what a terrible world, which came out not long ago was the most boring December song in existence. Uh, I would I would definitely say it's the least essential uh, I mean, of all uh, December songs. How Even, about this, guys? There's some nice pedal steel work on this song. There we go. Even, the, like, not just, like, boring, like, the pace is just glacial. It's, it is, it's a every slog. Every line is said so is slowly. Slog. Now, here's a question. I've never paid attention to the lyrics of this song. Good for you. Uh, but there's allusions to Mount Vesuvius. Yes. Is it literally about Mount Vesuvius? I think it's about, yeah, I think it's about Pompeii, right? I think yeah, it's the cocoon I, is the lava that covered the people of Pompeii. So like Pompeii is in a cocoon. Right. That's, because I guess, of the, yeah. that's, that's the idea, I guess. But is that a metaphor for something deeper? Who gives a shit? This song <laughs> blows. Yeah. That's, do we even need to spend well, Matt, much I, I have to say this, Matt. I, found, I looked on song song meanings to find what the song was about, and someone said that it is about a reaction to 9-11. No. Yeah, I can see it. Well, there's something, there is a line in here about, like, something about, something about war. I don't know. The tainted election, the low, dirty war. It there we happened go. before you came to. Right. So yeah. maybe this is a political song. 
I mean, way to couch your political message in the most boring song on the album. Yeah. They learn their lesson, though. They get better at political songs, too. And I will say the next song is almost like a better version of this song. Like, if you want a slow, melancholy song, then track seven, Grace Cathedral Hill, is way better. Grace Cathedral Hill. This is a great song. I love this song. It is. is, This is a standout for me on the album. One of the things I appreciate about this song, Kyle Malloy clearly is interested in like experiences he's never had. So he takes us to past settings, he takes us to Paris, he takes us to seasides and stuff. But this this song is is grounded in the the real world, right? It's grounded. It's about San Francisco. It feels very real. Well, so it apparently, from what I read, is actually about going to Carson Ellis's father's funeral in San Francisco. There you go. Which, when you read the lyrics, you can kind of tell, like, this, the details in this are too specific to not be a real experience that he had. So this is something I, again, that artificial, one of the things that I would say about this early December stuff is not that it's literary, but that it's fictional. Not in the way that it's literary, but in the way that it's artificial. And this song doesn't feel artificial. This song rings very true to me. It's a very earnest song that is unlike anything else in the album. And I would say it's sad, but there is almost a little bit of a bittersweetness to it because it is, it's like a, a melancholy atmosphere and, and event, but it, you can also kind of tell his love for her in the song. Some way to greet the year, your eyes all bright and brimmed with tears. The pilgrims, pills and tourists here sing 53 bucks to buy a brand new halo. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's about a relationship. It feels very fresh and burial. It's a song that, again, when I was in my 20s, I didn't pay attention to that much. Now, when I listen to it, I, I love if it. If this was the only December song you had ever heard, you would be really uh, shocked to find out the kind of music they play normally. Well, because it's not hokey in the way that so much of their music is. Is this podcast like a... Uh, this is so the, this podcast is not a love letter to December. <laughs> well, one of Matt's doing... goals was to be like, do I still like the Decemberists? So like, because I'd say like, do you want Kamaloy to hear this podcast, or is this something? It is my like, greatest fear that Kamaloy <laughs> would hear this podcast because a podcast to me is something like, why are you sharing? Like, this is an interesting exercise personally, but why are you sharing this with the world? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's fine. No. I don't mind, but I, I, I don't mind being the guest cr- skeptic. That's you fine. Guys, you guys, save Cocoon. I like every song so far. This is a great album so far. I don't like Cautionary Song. I'm disturbed by Odalisque. I'm not as on board as you guys are. I also have to say, I've been to Grace Cathedral Hill. Grace Cathedral is at the top of a very, very, very high hill in San Francisco. What's the uh, hot dog situation like there? Uh, there was no hot dog stand. So did it make it an interesting experience for you, knowing this song? Uh, <laughs> it No. Because I had an interesting experience, like, when I was in Portland and I went to, you know, the bus mall, right? Did you go to the Monoma County Library? I mean, that's just the library. <laughs> Monoma County is the county that Portland is in. So, yes. Uh, no, I don't know that I'd go in the being library. pretty evasive about answering that question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is probably my favorite song on the album. It's it's definitely a contender for me. Just like a nice, like, sort of like, sort, and this is them in that kind of country western mode, too, that they bust out every now and then. I don't know, or like a like not country western, but like a like a an Americana rather than like a British folky kind of thing uh, that they do really well. I don't know if this is a good anecdote, but I'm gonna go ahead and throw it out there. Ben Gabbard recently did a cover of this song on uh, on his Instagram, and it kind of made me think 
what other bands have done Decemberist covers? Oh, uh, well, here's something interesting I found in my research. Uh, here I dreamt I was an architect was covered by Patti Smith. Really? I think I knew that. I think I've heard that. Uh, Sarah Jarose does a cover of Shankill Butcher, which is pretty good. But are they, they're not like a band's band, right? I mean, like, they're not like... I would say no. I mean, I feel like the people who like the Decemberists are generally not other famous musicians. What about Lin-Manuel Miranda? Yeah, I think he likes the Decemberists, yeah. He does. He, he, well, he had them record um, Benjamin Franklin's song, a cut song from... Uh, Hamilton, and on the anniversary re-release of Crane Wife, he writes an introduction for that's, it. That's yeah, that's that well, counts. Lin Manuel is also a big fan of uh, overly too clever for their own good lyrics. That's true. He does do it better than Con Malloy, though. <laughs> Again, whoa, I really hope Malloy does not hear this podcast. That's fine. Wow. What, um, is, it, okay. is that a controversial statement to say Lin Manuel Miranda is a better lyricist than Con Malloy? I mean, uh, he's a better rapper than Con Malloy. I'll. <laughs> I'll cross um, that bridge with you. We don't know that. Okay, yeah, that's we true. Do. We don't know that. But I'm yeah, willing right, to right. I'm willing to bet that. I'm going to move on to the next song, because Steve's making me feel bad that we're kind of down on the Decemberists. But track eight, Legionnaire's Lament, is sort of the kind of like jaunty, kind of silly mode that the Decemberists live in a lot that is the kind of song that made me kind of fall in love with them. I'm a legionnaire, camel in disrepair, hoping for a frigidaire to come passing. I love this song. I think this is like the Decemberists doing the Decemberists at their best. It is, and it's it's lighthearted and whimsical. Again, it's very artificial. After Grace Cathedral Hill, this song is like so character type. It gets, plays on a stereotype of like a right a uh a, a french foreign legion soldier on a camel in a desert seeing a mirage of paris and all paris is is like the champs-elysees right it's it's very artificial but it's so much fun it's really easy to imagine this song as like a cartoon yeah for sure this would have an animated music video or like at least a funny music video i love the lyric camel in disrepair yeah it is a really funny phrase i've also always loved that hoping for a frigid air could be a refrigerator or a cold breeze oh that's yeah that's clever i've only ever thought of it as the refrigerator yeah it is capitalized on my lyric sheet it could be though a frigid air no it's definitely a frigid air no it's a double entendre here's my thing until looking at the lyrics i did not know that bagatelles was one word yeah it's like a billiards game um, it's it's, it's a fun. sidewalk beggar telling that man. Yeah, I really misheard that. <laughs> what do you guys know about the French Foreign Legion? Uh, I'm I'm feeling tan uniforms. All I know is they, they have those hats. They got the hats. Yeah, that's the, the hats hat. with like the fabric over the back. Sure. Yeah. Basically, yeah. everything guy, I know about the French Foreign Legion I learned from cartoons. Yeah, it's like a Looney Tunes thing, right? <laughs> uh, by the way, when he says "my baby in a share bank," that's a bus. Yeah, he goes on the Champs Elysees. It makes sense. Right. Uh, where do you guys think they are? You think this guy's in Algeria? In what foreign war were the French Foreign Legion fighting? I mean, they were in Algeria. But yeah, this is like, this is a fun song that they kind of remake this type of song a lot in their first couple of albums. Yeah. Chimney Sweep in the next album is essentially a play in this kind of formula. Or uh, Soldiering Life. It's fun. Yeah, it's like a low stakes, you know, no one's... I mean, it's a war, obviously, but like, there's no horrible things happening in this one. This is a song that winks. This is a winking song. This is like, yeah, up oh, clever, eh? It's like a, it's like a Bing Crosby uh, war movie. Like, it's not. No one's getting their arms blown off, <laughs> right? 
And once again, kind of this is as upbeat and poppy as July July as well. This is the other big upbeat yes. poppy song. Yeah, those those two songs stand as pillars of like, see, we're a fun band on this album. Because without those two songs, how different would this album be? Yeah, that's fair. I do like it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot yeah. of fun live too. All right, Matt, what we got next? Next up, we have Clementine. This is a really pretty song. I love this song. This song I did not like in my 20s, and I love it now. It's got some great pedal steel. For sure. This is another one that's really full of um, l- l- images that feel very real and very interesting. Um, again, like this urban poverty, right? We've, we're, you know, in a hollowed out... Uh, what, we'll build us a home of packing foam, and it'll be there after we die... We're getting married, but we've got cans on our bicycle fenders. So it's this image of poverty. And there's maybe some, I don't know, some fetishization of poverty in this album. But this one, like it just, it's, it's really um, evocative sort of imagery. In is this where that, the Dickens stuff comes in? Oh, the Dickens stuff is definitely coming from Leslie and Levine, even though it actually is not really like anything in Dickens. This actually reminds me a lot of, this one uh, reminds me lyrically um, of some stuff that Joanna Newsom does. And I know Kamaloy is a Joanna Newsom fan as he covers Bridges and Balloons on Picarescades. So one of my favorite live Decemberist moments is a time at the pageant in St. Louis where they played this song. And Kamaloy, similar to Pete, your uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac experience, uh, he goes right at the end of this right into Clementine by Elliot Smith um, in a way that was um, really touching and beautiful. It's a really great Elliott Smith song, too. It's a really great Elliott Smith song. Matt likes to bash Elliott Smith. I think he's just fine. <laughs> Do you like the song Clementine? Uh, yeah, it's it's a good song. All right. <laughs> Look, I think Elliott Smith is totally just a really okay guy. Uh, he, he had some really okay songs. It's a couple really good ones. Mm. All right. So we're going to turn this into an Elliott Smith hate cast now? Is that what's uh, what's coming up? I didn't bring him up. That was that was you. I would I would have nothing bad to say about Elliot Smith. I just don't like him to the extent that a lot of other people seem to. No, I wasn't here for five songs. Is there steel pedal on five songs? Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's steel pedal. Shiny's got a lot of it. And... Becomes like a, a fixture. Like once a Decemberist album, you get like a steel pedal country kind of song. I feel like the steel pedal and the accordion are sort of like token elements of their early albums. Well, that's why Chris Funk was brought on initially. It was to play pedal steel. I learned that last episode. (laughs) So the album ends with a high note, with probably the most ambitious song on the album. Well, it begins the Decemberist trend of we're writing a long song, but it's actually multiple songs just smashed together. Which was hinted at in Odalisque. So track 10, California One, Youth and Beauty Brigade. This song always reminds me of actually driving on California One on my honeymoon. We listened to this song while we drove on California One. Just on repeat? Uh, no, not it's a long road. But uh, I mean, it's a pretty long song. It is a long song, and it is. I feel like it's it's a good road trip song. So let's start with the first part of the song, California One. What do you guys think of this first part? Yeah, I don't know. If lyrically, it's super interesting, but it's certainly pretty. It's not as specific as some of the others. Like Grace Cathedral Hill is a, is a very sp- song that's very specific about a place, and this one is very 
general about this place. Yeah. And then it, it transitions into the Youth and Beauty Brigade, which, by the way, there is a very faint audio clip of talking between the two movements in the song. Have you guys caught Go that on. in the song? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Well, so apparently that is a clip from the film Archangel by Canadian filmmaker Guy Madden. And what they're saying is a woman who says, I've heard ghosts, good ghosts who wander the battlefields at night, guiding soldiers out of danger. If I was such a ghost, I would stay close to you. You could feel my breath on your cheek. That's a cool line. Yeah. Do you, do you have more to say about that? <laughs> nope. That's If you never knew what was being said, that's I mean, is being it, said. Does it have some sort of greater context within the song? Uh... I don't know. Here's my question. I'm thinking of speaking of context in the song. How are why are these two songs one song? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's it's a because they transition nicely. Maybe. Well, I mean, you could make any song transition nicely if you build a nice transition for it. Right. That's my thing. So later on, they wind up doing this kind of thing, but they are at least are tied together. I mean, they're both sort of West Coast, California. One. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, they do Manoma end up in, County. in Portland. So maybe it's about. A journey that Colin undertook. So the picture that is with this song on the album art is of like revolutionary looking people. Like, I don't know, like they're some kind of like communist uh, organization trying to start some kind of uprising. But let's think about who this revolution is. Bedwetters, ambulance chasers, and pickpockets. And castaways and cutouts. (laughs) Is this just like ragtag... Like people that society doesn't give a crap about. Is yeah, that the like, idea? It's like losers and nerds rise up. This is a revenge of the nerds kind of thing. Yeah. Because they're bench warmers. I mean, Colin Malloy has this self image that I think he's sort of cultivated as this like nerdy, wimpy figure, right? That's maybe best encapsulated later on in the sporting life. And I think this is a, about a similar kind of um, pushover kind of character. So is he like the Pied Piper of nerds? Sure. It worked for me when I was in my 20s. By the way, it seems like the the people at the library told him to go join the Youth and Beauty Brigade. That's that's exactly what it says in the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. So at the, like, at the library, they said, son, go join up. So he's being recruited for some sort of nerd. Secret librarian brigade. <laughs> yeah. So that's the, that's the last song. It ends in this sort of like, it builds up gradually into this grand Baroque crescendo kind of. And that's how they end their first album. So what's your guys, on a fresh re-listen, general takeaway from Castaways and Cutouts? It's a really solid album. I think so. I think as a debut album, it's really pretty good. Well, the best thing about it is, is it is interesting. It isn't even listening to it now, having listened to, you know, obviously a lot more music than I did than I had when I was 19. It's a kind of a weird set of songs. Which really, if this is their first album, this is them making a statement well i think they've carved this album they they carve their place out and um and and it's a good album for recruiting people because it it illustrates that they're not going to sing songs about the kind of things that everyone else is singing songs about right and despite the neutral milk hotel comparisons i think unlike uh that band you have you have 10 songs and they all are pretty different like they're not there's no like sameness to them yeah but i don't think anything on this album is as good as well that's the thing Airplane over the sea. That's the thing. But like, I do find the comparisons a little bit weird. Just that the fact that everyone mentions it is what's so weird. Like I could imagine being like, oh, there's a little bit, a little bit, I guess. But the fact that everyone talks about it 
when this album came out. It's just odd. Was there just no other like bands with lead singers that sounded kind of weird and didn't Nasally. sing? I don't know. I mean, yeah, like what was what else was on the musical landscape at that time? People said the same thing when Black Sheep Boy by Ocarina River came out, which is an album I like a lot. And I think in terms of at- atmospherically maybe is an attitude closer. Is, is closer to New York Hotel. Yeah. This one maybe sonically is closer. But it's interesting. Compare, like Lyrically, as off the wall as the lyrics are on this album, they're not nearly as bizarre as the lyrics on Airplane Over the Sea. <laughs> like, Airplane Over the Sea makes this look like just a set of, like I don't know, normal, average pop songs. That's fair. Okay, so I, I'm not even going to ask what all of our least favorite song on this album is because I'm pretty sure we would all say Cocoon. But I'm curious, on a fresh re-listen, what does everyone think is the best song on this album? I mean, I would say best song is Grace Good Teeth Through Hill. I think that's, it's both my favorite song on the album and I think the best song on the album. I, I'm probably going to agree with Grace Cathedral Hill. I was surprised that how much I liked uh, Clementine as well, though I don't think it's quite as good as Grace Cathedral Hill. I'm going to say that my favorite one to listen to is probably the closer, California One, Youth and Beauty Brigade. I just really like the buildup of that song. It's very satisfying. So for me, it's cautionary song. Were there any other songs that sunk in your regard listening to this album fresh as an older person? Not really. I liked every song except Cocoon. Uh, I would say I was, I've never been as hot on Legionnaire's Lament as, uh, as everyone else seems to be in this podcast. It is a silly song. It's the closest they get to being a novelty band uh, for a while. Now it's time for uh, our our favorite segment. How did Pitchfork feel about this album? <laughs> oh, uh, this is this segment s- every time. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So this is we're, the we're, we're tracking the Decemberists becoming less and less hip. This is the segment where Pete tries to guess or remember uh, the rating that Pitchfork gave the album on a ten point scale. Uh, I will, I'll give you a little, little, just a little background, Pete. Uh, it was reviewed by Eric Carr. Can I ask if it got best new music? It did get best new music. All right, so that means it's at least like a an eight. I'm going to guess an eight three. On the nose. Boom. That is, that's impressive. Well, I think only albums that get above an 8.0 get best new music. So because he liked the album, it, it's it's not a very snarky review. Uh, I mean, obviously, it does talk a lot about Nutramilk Hotel because that was the only you know point of reference that any music writer had to describe the Decemberists at this point. Uh, I would say the least charitable thing... In the review, is this is a quote from Eric Carr, the constant sobriety of the rest of the tracks does wear thin now and then. The inclusion of another similarly uplifting tune might have made the record somewhat more effective, but the somber fables of castaways and cutouts remain compelling nonetheless. Uh, the sort of allusions to a similarly uplifting tune are to July, July, which he thought was a standout. I will say I read the review today. I was surprised at how nonspecific it was. Like they only mentioned like three songs in the review. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really poorly written review for, for a like feature review for a best new music album. It spends almost as much time talking about the band as it does talking about a band that isn't the Decemberists. Yeah. Basically, their pitch is, if you like New Turbo Hotel, you should listen to this band. That's like the whole review. But don't you imagine that they're probably one of the first places to really review this album? So they're kind of just trying to introduce a reader who's never heard of them to what this band is like. 
Yeah. Here's a question. Would Pitchfork give this album best new music today? Absolutely not. It seems no. so it seems so painfully unhip for today's Pitchfork. It's always seemed unhip though. Right. But I mean th- there was a time before New Girl when things weren't adorkable. Uh when when being nerdy and sort of like lame was was like uh a niche. It was novel. Uh, so, right. There was there was a yeah, there was a novelty to it. Now it's just sort of like it's overplayed at this point. So you're saying Big Bang Theory ruined the Decemberists. Yeah, among other things. I mean, but also like it, a rock album wouldn't get best new music on Pitchfork, you know, in, in uh, 2020. Fiona Apple's new album just got a 10 on Pitchfork. That's a rock album. But you're right, Matt. Pitchfork is a lot of rap and experimental now. And, you know, pop and like you know, dance music. Like it's just, I think the landscape of what is, what is listened to by cool people is a lot different than it was in, in 20, you know, or 2002. If you guys were to score this album on a 10 point scale, what would you give it? Uh, I would give it a nine. It's a solid nine, but knowing what I know from the rest of their release, that's probably influencing my, my grading. Yeah. I was thinking actually eight, three is pretty spot on. Yeah, I think I'm an 8-1. I like most of the album. I love, realistically, a little bit of this album. That's fair. Well, I feel like that's a good place to leave off. Steve, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here, Steve. Sure, yeah. Uh, I will, I'll listen. I'll listen to see what, if this, I'm interested to see at the end if we find out if Matt is or is not a December fan <laughs> after he's sunk hours of his life into a podcast retrospective of their entire career. You know, something we never brought up when we were talking about why we were doing this, uh, I mean, it's it's sort of, I guess, vaguely relevant. That it is, it is their sort of 20th anniversary, right? Yeah. This, this year is their 20th anniversary as a band. So it's, it's now more than ever uh, relevant to talk about the career of the Decemberists. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, anyway, uh, should we try and come up with a, let's, let's send, I'm, I'm going to create the send off line for our podcast with this one. Yeah. Matt. That's, that's always our goal is to create our sort of, our tried and true, uh, forever send off line. Uh, till next time, this has been, we both podcast together. Keep your guts suspended in your fingers. I'd say that's probably the least embarrassing one we've had so far. That's not bad, right? It's still bad, but it's the least bad. All right. Bye. Bye.